Hello and welcome to the Farm Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. When President Biden talks about his cancer moonshot, he's not literally talking about the moon. He's referencing the legendary innovation push that got Americans to the moon in 1969. But what if there's a more direct link between pharmaceutical research and space science? My guests today are Christina Corridan, Global Lead of Oncology at ZS Associates, and Sandeep Sangwan, who leads the Knowledge Services R&D team at ZS Associates, or ZS for my UK colleagues. We're going to be talking about just that, how research conducted in space can advance life sciences research, especially in oncology. Welcome to the show, Christina and Sandeep. Thank you, Jonah. So just to start out, um, I I would love to to hear a little bit about what the two of you do at ZS Associates. And um, and, I mean, you came to me with this pitch. I thought it was so interesting. Um, But, you know, what's the framing here? How how do you guys what are some of the ways you guys work with, I guess, space, space research and, and space science? Well, Jenna, we're, we don't have the pleasure of working direct, directly with space research at this point, but some of the notable organizations um, that are that have conducted research there successfully so far on the space station um, are among you know the group of clients that uh, we've worked with for many years that we are working with um, in oncology quite extensively on the R&D and commercial fronts. Um, and so this is a really... If, fascinating and and emerging new topic area for us as we think about what's possible in terms of the future evolution of oncology um, research, advancements, and then also finding ways to um, make existing products that might be available in line and already launched um, better, right, through, you know, more convenient ways to administer, um, faster ways to administer, et cetera. Sandeep, did you want to add a bit? No, I think uh, you covered it pretty much uh, well, Christina. So from R&D perspective, uh, we, we help our clients to expedite uh, their R&D processes, be it the uh, drug discovery part or uh, the clinical trial uh, part uh, in there. So we are among the few firms that uh, work across the R&D value chain uh, with our clients. So what are, I mean, for for folks who are like hearing this and thinking, you know, what, what could be the connection there? What, what are some of the ways that it, that it actually is, is helpful to, to pharma research to, to use, to do work on the space station or, or do microgravity research? What, what are some of the kind of scientific underpinnings here? Yeah, maybe I can take that, uh, Christina. So, uh, microgravity, uh, well, the new out of the world prescription that pharmaceutical research has got, uh, explores many new frontiers that have, uh, transformative potential. Uh, we can talk about the main four frontiers spread across the pharmaceutical R&D uh, value chain uh, where the microgravity experiments are helping. Uh, so the first frontier uh, where microgravity is helping pharma is disease understanding. Uh, when we grow cells in labs on Earth, uh, they usually flatten on the surface of culture dishes uh, due to the gravitational pull. Uh, however, when we grow them in space, they take on more natural three-dimensional shapes, which allow us a more in-depth study and understanding of the disease. So uh, Neil Armstrong, uh, a very uh, respected name in the space uh, pursuit of mankind, his daughter was killed by a childhood cancer named diffuse midline glioma in 1960s. Currently, a a, a study about uh, uh, the International Space Station is exploring how the same cancer develops. We are trying to understand that uh, cancer now. So the study will take advantage of microgravity condition to create much larger 3D structures of cancer cells 
than those which can be created on earth. So these large 3D structures of cancer cells can help gain insights into the structure, composition and interactions of these cancer cells to each other, which might provide us good new ideas for disrupting their growth and stopping uh, their growth in there. So for Neil's one giant leap for the mankind, this would be a small yet significant step towards understanding this cancer and finding better treatments eventually. Then the second That is so interesting. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so I was talking about uh, the, the four uh, frontiers where uh, microgravity is helping. The, sec- the second frontier uh, we can talk about is drug discovery, uh, where identification of uh, new targets is key, right? Uh, in our bodies, we have approximately 20,000 proteins that uh, govern our physiological functions, uh, driving nearly every chemical process within our bodies. Uh, understanding protein structures can help in developing new medicine again. Uh, in the unique environment of space, uh, proteins form larger and more orderly crystals. So in both of these uh, cases, protein crystallization is behind both these uh, things, right? So why this happens in, in space uh, and why it doesn't happen on Earth? Because of uh, the reduced sedimentation, minimal convection currents and uh, reduce molecular diffusion rates, uh, all these uh, physical phenomena uh, that are not in, in, uh, there in the space. So this allows scientists a clearer insights into the uh, makeup. Now, again, notably the research on KRAS protein, uh, which is linked to several cancers, has been enhanced by uh, space studies, offering hope for more effective cancer treatments in uh, the future. The mutation of uh, KRAS gene drives 30 to 40% of all cancers, uh, including about 95% of pancreatic cancers. So we see here, uh, if, if we are able to understand this single KRAS protein uh, more accurately, it brings a lot of hope not only in pancreatic cancer, but to many more uh, for finding uh, effective treatments. Then so the- should, we, should we let Jonah weigh in? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just fascinated. Uh, I, I want to hear the other two. And then, and then I've got, I know my next question already. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, uh, continuing on the uh, frontiers part in here, uh, the third uh, and the one of the most important frontiers would be uh, drug development process, uh, that is clinical trials, right? So, aging and pathogenicity uh, have been shown to expedite in space. Hence, the knowledge gained through microgravity research can facilitate drug screening and improved drug design. We are not there yet on clinical trials in space in true sense. But leveraging the expedited uh, aging and pathogenicity that is observed in space, uh, we can reach the outcomes more quickly than on Earth through in vitro uh, experimenting in there. So achieving the uh, similar targets uh, is is faster, can be faster in uh, space. And for clinical trials in space, uh, would need to think beyond uh, our traditional trial designs because of all those uh, logistical challenges that we have uh, in there. And then quickly uh, touching upon the fourth uh, frontier, uh, and then we'll uh, hand over back to you, Jonah. This is biomanufacturing, which is biofabrication of tissues in microgravity uh, enables the development of tissues from pluripotent cells with high precision, right? These tissues not only provide new models to test potential new therapeutics, but they also pave the way for uh, development of therapies for tissue and artificial organ repair and replacement. So in the long term, 
they can address the issue of shortage of donor organs. So in the future, we might see fantasy coming closer to reality for an industrial park, uh, manufacturing industrial park in the space, as shown in the uh, fantasy movies like Star Wars, Interstellar, right? So take Verda Space Industries example, right? And and it, it's an in-space uh, manufacturing startup, right? Their debut mi- uh, mission yeah. involved uh, a mini lab in space growing crystals for HIV drug retinavir, right? So a lot of uh, hope in there uh, that, that we can see in the space. It sounds like so many limitations here are going to be logistical. I mean, there is only, I, I imagine there's quite a bit of competition to get a research project onto the International Space Station. I'm I'm sure that there, I know there's more and more kind of private space flight companies that are able to facilitate things like this, but how does that work? Um, you know, when, like, when you have a, a client that's interested in, in doing this work or, or sees a scientific benefit, how do they get a ticket? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, first, we must remember that this is, it's a, it's a portion of how you would design and execute a clinical trial um, that can leverage the, the, and harness the power of microgravity and what that offers, right, in terms of protein crystallization growth, and then being able to really zone in and sort of study a perfect protein that you cannot grow on Earth to the same extent, and then figure out how are we going to target that with a drug, right? So it's um, much more sort of early in the development process and a piece of it. So that does help in terms of thinking about how, how much capacity might be required or could be. Right. You don't need 100 patients to go up there so you can do a RCT. That's right. That's right. You know, so it's, so it's also, I mean, I think um, it, tapping into the, the the power of being able to do more in vitro and silico types of trials and studies and what those look like versus um, patient-dependent trials. Uh, but, you know, Jonah, to me, I, it's also about getting a greater volume of companies interested in pursuing this um, and looking at this as a, as a viable option for them to do so. Um, so we know there's a, a limited subset of companies, Mark, BMS, Amgen, um, you know, to name a few that have tapped into this, but I, I'm not sure it's been prioritized or on the radar radar of a, a large wide set. Um, or if you're, you're an emerging pharma sort of first launch company, um, if you, if you're thinking about this on the R and D horizon. So it's a, it's a different, you know, question or, or piece to pursue in terms of getting a greater volume of interest. And then there's a second piece, which is how, how do you tap into being uh, a company that can be prioritized and, and given presence and uh, um, and focus within the space station itself? And I know the current International Space Station is set to expire in 2030s. So I think there's also a big question around what does that mean in terms of, you know, the, the next generation of space stations or private sector, et cetera? What do you think, yeah. Sandeep? Yeah, I think the you you made a really good point, uh, Christina, about uh, uh, the expiry of uh, International Space Station. But even before that, uh, the the challenges uh, uh, are not uh, limited. So today there is there is only the ISS, which is uh, staffed with only seven or so astronauts running all the experiments on board at at any given time, which is like nothing as compared to we have uh, on Earth. Right. And then there is this high potential failure rate that companies uh, usually face in these uh, experimentation. So in, in late 2020, right, uh, BMS experimented uh, with 12 protein crystallization conditions on ISS uh, for an undisclosed monoclonal antibody, but all of them failed uh, to produce useful crystals. The 
roster, as Jonah, you mentioned, for getting a slot again on ISS is a long wait. But I'm sure companies like uh, BMS must be thinking to try it again until they succeed. So, okay. I, I, in the pitch, there was also mention of sort of the, a patient experience angle um, around how Merck used this work with Keytruda. Can, can you talk about that at all? Yeah, uh, sure. So we all know how big of, of a relief it brings to patient if we are able to convert an IV injection to a subcutaneous one, right? As the latter uh, saves them from long queues and waiting time in hospitals, right? Uh, so for example, monoclonal antibodies like the one you mentioned, Keytruda, uh, which is used for treating several cancers, uh, do not dissolve easy in liquid uh, on, on Earth. Uh, then the protein crystallization uh, growth uh, experiments that Merck was uh, conducting. Uh, so they produced high quality crystalline suspensions that could uh, make possible delivery of Keytruda by subcutaneous uh, injection. Not, on that, not only would uh, make treatment more convenient for patients and caregivers, but also uh, would significantly reduce the cost. See, what we are talking about here, a space experiment for reducing cost. Sounds fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what's fascinating about it, I think, is is this, no, you know, I mean, what we hear about space and, and space research is that everything kind of works differently in microgravity. So the notion that experiments that you do in microgravity then can come back and, and help improve something on Earth, it's almost hard to get your head around. Like, <laughs> you know, the whole thing in science is you try to conduct your experiment in a in a setting that matches the, the real world setting where the drug is going to be used but this is sort of the opposite of that yeah absolutely i guess yeah so um there's no question there my question is you know kind of how, how does that work how can how can um developing things in in microgravity then and have the end result of giving you something that helps to to improve um the you know in in that example of the functioning of a, of a drug or the administration of a drug in here on earth my take to kind of tr attempt to break it down in, in a simple fashion is that you're using a, a more perfect environment in terms of how the crystals grow within microgravity or in how you're able and how you're able to better st study monoclonal antibodies or some of the underpinnings of what make up some of these very specialized biologic drugs like a Keytruda. Um, and in so doing, like as mentioned previously, even if you're in market, you may learn a better way um, by which to sort of um, think about the, the blend of molecule solubility, in which case you can determine from there, how do we manufacture this in a different way, in which case, um, you know, the, the patient doesn't need to be getting the infusion for the same duration of time. So, you know, you're kind of taking the same risk benefit profile of, of how the drug is working, but then you're using those conditions to, you know, figure out means by which to better manufacture it to make it more convenient. Um, and so that, that's that's the way I think about it is sort of this um, we're able to learn better in this environment where these where proteins grow slower um, and the end result uh, is also, you know, much uh, sharper, clearer. And easier for us to uh, to to get better at producing what that um, drug will ultimately look like. Almost like you're removing that distracting variable of gravity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, thinking again. Sorry, go ahead, Cindy. No, I was just uh, adding up uh, at at a very high level. It's like uh, identifying and studying the protein targets in uh, the space 
and why it is it becomes easier uh, to study in space is because uh, uh, the these proteins tend to precipitate out of the buffer solution uh, on Earth. So they need a lot of scheduling uh, in here. Uh, but in space, uh, under microgravity, this problem is uh, solved and they uh, stay put uh, in, in the buffer solution. And based on the findings, then you come back to Earth. Uh, you, you have that knowledge of about those target proteins and then you identify the drug leads on Earth uh, based on your knowledge uh, about those proteins. So we talked a little bit about, you know, where the future, what the future could look like in this space. And, and it sounds like a lot of that is going to be dependent on what replaces the ISS and, and you know, some, some larger trends in, in private and public-private space travel. But, I mean, as, as you guys think about this, just based on the need and, and the potential, how do you see this playing out in the next 5, 10, 20 years in terms of... of the scale on which we're doing this research. Yeah, I think uh, from from the overall industry perspective, uh, uh, I see uh, it's not only uh, the big pharma uh, that is uh, uh, putting efforts in here. Even uh, newer uh, companies uh, are also uh, getting ready uh, for putting their pets in there, and they they already have actually. So uh, it it would not be concentrated to big pharma despite uh, having that uh, access uh, challenge. Uh, Inno Studio um, uh, is is one example uh, in in their right uh, a chemistry research company. Uh, it flew its experiment uh, to the ISS to see where microgravity could help improve the stability of uh, Gilead antiviral Remdesivir uh, to increase the efficiency and uh, reduce the risk profile of the drug formulation. So, so it's it's a, it's a small company, uh, but yet it 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 has uh, acquired those uh, investments and uh, is is uh, in in the pursuits uh, in here. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think Jonah that the oncology field in particular. There is a, a huge appetite and a need and an urgency to uh, to experiment with how you're experimenting, right? And to do innovative things in the R and D space um, that are groundbreaking that can really help alleviate, you know, the heavy worldwide burden um, between morbidity, mortality, and then quality of life that that cancer presents itself. So, you know, I, I, ideally, this, you know, you, we remove the the capacity constraints. There is, you know, a, a lot more room for more companies to tap into this. It seems plausible that it could become, you know, potentially a best practice in the early stages of development. It could also be, um, you know, a key influencer in our, our our rush to find a lot more targets and novel targets to go after in an area that has become, you know, quite crowded and competitive um, with, you know, a lot of companies going after small targets and high unmet need areas. Um, and so if we can find a, a much bro um, broader array of targets to go after, that also creates a, a, a lot more room and perhaps a healthier, healthier type of competition. Um, and then we haven't talked a lot about people traveling into space, but we also know that, you know, that has adverse effects on health, right? And there are there's a lot that we can kind of learn from, you know, what what that looks like in the health status of people while they are in space um, that could also be very useful in terms of prevention, earlier detection, et cetera. So if we be, believe we're on the, um, and I would imagine many, many people do, that we're on the advent of space travel becoming maybe not common, but, uh, you know, more extensive and more more folks having the opportunity to do so, we can also kind of look at the impact of that on health and what the learnings might be for a broader population on Earth 
um, that could also be be quite informative and interesting. I know NASA was doing a sort of N of two identical twin study um, with uh, one twin was an astronaut and the other one was was on Earth. Um, just with that specific idea of kind of trying to learn what are the broader health effects and how can we quantify them more closely. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great example. And then Sandeep, you mentioned biomanufacturing. That one seems way off in the future, just, you know, logistically, just because you've got to get things up and down, right? You've got to get the materials up and get the biologics down again. Um, and, you know, lacking something like an elevator, that's like a big expense every time. Uh, but how do you how do you imagine that working? Yeah, so I think that has already started at a very small scale. Uh, the the example uh, we discussed uh, earlier, right? Uh, uh, the company has already uh, produced those crystals, and they are coming back uh, uh, on Earth. It, initially, uh, they fa- faced some challenges uh, uh, in getting regulatory approval, getting entry with uh, that those produced new produced uh, crystals out in space. Uh, but they found out a way out uh, by getting permission to land in in Australia rather than US, and and in the future they are also targeting to get into the US as well uh, again. So this has already started. It, it's not that uh, it, it's very much far off. Although the full fledged manufacturing industry that we uh, talk about that is that is uh, actually a, a bit uh, far back right now. So as we kind of come to the end of the time. Is there anything you, any kind of calls to action you guys would have for folks in the industry um, who are maybe interested in getting more involved in this work or maybe don't know that um, the possibilities for them might exist in in microgravity research and space research? Um, you know, what sort of any kind of words of encouragement or, or advice? I think uh, the beauty of uh, pharmaceutical research is in experimenting and uh, uh, there is nothing more exciting than space from experimentation uh, perspective. Uh, A few uh, frontiers that we discussed uh, about which are already seeming accessible, but there are some frontiers which are where we are not there yet. For example, the clinical trials thing, uh, we are not uh, yet running clinical trials out in space. For which, of course, we would need to think beyond the traditional trial designs and a lot more thinking would be required uh, in there. But definitely some exciting frontiers to win over uh, by pharmaceutical R&D. Yeah, from my perspective, I I think it's um, frontier is a perfect word for it. It's a new frontier being um, open minded and opportunistic and uh, excited and and looking for how to, to tap into this as a another way to innovate to speed up what you're what you're studying to make it better whether it's you know in uh, the, the very very early stages of clinical development and target identification or it's it's already in line and you're looking for um, life cycle management uh, improvements uh, incremental benefits you know and I, I think our, our industry is very very open and 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 ripe for change. There's a lot of disruption. Is is the word probably overly used word um, that we oftentimes uh, bring up when we talk about the healthcare landscape and how where we're headed over the next five to ten years, both in terms of treatments as well as how you know how the patient experience. And so you know, looking forward to this this being a part of that, um, and also you know being open to a mix of different collaborations um, in order to, you know, tap tap into space in terms of uh, development, right? So whether that's in the 
private or public sectors, you know, via NASA and the Cancer Moonshot Program with academic institutions or, or other private organizations or corporations that, that uh, may aspire to be in space. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really was surprised by the degree to which this is not just hypothetical. This has been happening and we even have products in the market that were that benefited from this research or, or were, were inspired by this research. And, and um, so it's just it's just fascinating and it'll be exciting to see where it does go as we continue to advance both in oncology research and in our abilities and access and, and understanding of of space travel. Absolutely, Jonah. That's well said. Um, I do believe this is uh, not widely known, even for many that are, are are working kind of actively in our industry, particularly on the commercial side. So uh, very excited for this to become uh, much more prevalent and uh, the awareness to build. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.